What's up, Freedom Chasers? If you want to learn how to invest in real estate while working abroad as a teacher, we have this show for you today. Our guest has built up over $60,000 per year in passive income while working as a teacher in China, and he's going to tell us how he did it right now. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers Six Figure Strategies Podcast. If you're an agent or an investor yet to hit six figures, this is the show for you. We take a deep dive into strategies to help you achieve the goal of six figures so that you can grow up to seven figures eventually. All right, guys, meet David Sawalich, who works as an English teacher overseas. He started about three years ago. He learned about the FIRE method and eventually worked his way into real estate as well as stocks and crypto. David has been investing while abroad, and he's going to share how he built up his real estate portfolio while teaching students in China. Um, David, super stoked to have you here today, man. First off, like what compelled you to move to China and go teach English over there? <laughs> finances um i had some student debt to pay back and uh someone had mentioned to me that you could earn some pretty good money in china and it doesn't cost much to live over here so uh, all your basic necessities are very cheap um rent groceries things like that very cool um i was attracted to this idea when i was younger i never pulled the trigger though so like what was it like totally uprooting your family and just moving to China because I'm jealous. Oh. I did the same thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you when I, um, I was a little bit naive when I came here, I, I figured everyone could speak English. So I actually didn't know any Chinese when I got on that flight and I got off at the airport and that taxi driver, when he picked me up was like, China, China. I was like, I had no idea what he was saying. And <laughs> Oh man, it was, it was an experience and a half. Um, there are things that are just culturally different. Um, uh, uh, being allowed in different cities, it, it, it's it's crazy. I remember our, our first week, we were put up in a hotel by the company that uh, sent me there. And uh, they do like this, this week training while you're in a hotel. And no joke, when I'm there in the middle of the night, these people drop off cards in your room like they slide them under the door and then knock on your door and run away and they're they're cards with numbers on them <laughs> and they're for you know if you want a little extra service oh, okay. <laughs> i was about to say it sounds a little strange i get it okay so i mean it's basically like we'll call it a what are those called a happy ending type thing <laughs> that's what they're going for Oh, so I never called the number. I never called the number, but, but a guy married, right? <laughs> I wasn't then, but I'm now, I'm now. So well, never called the number, but I, I've, I've got them. If you want me to bring them back to the States when I go. Okay, cool. So I thought you guys were already together when you guys moved out there. So did you meet her out there? How did that whole story? Um, yeah, I did. So I met my wife um, out here. Uh, I had flown to an island, actually. There's a, a tropical island similar to Hawaii. It's called Hainan. And um, she was working there at a JW Marriott as an events manager. And I was an English teacher. And uh, actually, she was outside setting up a wedding on the beach. And I just happened to be running by. At that time, my Chinese was a little bit better. And I I pulled some smooth moves my friends taught me and, you know, we just added each other's WeChat. Well, sorry, uh, it's like a, a talking app. It's called WeChat. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. It's in the news sometimes. Not in a good light, but, 
you know, so we, we added each other's uh, contacts and, and we were able to work. But she didn't speak any English. That's That was interesting. Our whole relationship, the whole first six months, we were just translating to each other. So that was, it made our fights very interesting. You know, you get into a quarrel with someone, but you can't speak their language. It's, it's very hard. <laughs> oh, dude, I could relate. Um, my wife is from Mexico. So, I mean, her first okay. language is Spanish. I speak Spanish. She speaks English. So it's not like, I mean, there were some communication breakdowns, though, at points, because it's also weird, too, when you're with somebody that speaks your language as a second language, because mm. the way you communicate in that language is a little bit different. Like, because most people translate from whatever language into another language. A lot of times the translations are goofy, right? Like, it'll make total sense in Spanish, but it won't make any sense in English. Are you following right. what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I completely yeah. get it. And then, yeah. I mean, can you imagine thinking about how to translate something while you're full of emotion? Like when you're really angry, but you have to speak another language. I, I mean, it, it's just, it, it really adds to the relationship. You really have to be patient with each other sometimes. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, so cool. Like how long did it take you to learn Chinese? Obviously you have a pretty good grasp of it now. But like, how long? Because Chinese is not a romance language, bro. Like, I mean, the, the beauty of like a lot of languages is they're pretty similar to English or, you know, they're an offshoot because, you know, English is like the most bastardized language there is. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was. Chinese had to be yeah. tough. So actually, if you look at numbers, Chinese is the most spoken language in the world. Just because they have the largest population. That's literally it. No one speaks Chinese outside of China, but, um, and then I think Spanish was second and English is third. Uh, but I often say that like when I'm trying to promote English learning, I tell the parents, like, even though Chinese is spoken by more people, English is spoken in a diverse range of areas and it's most people's second language. So if you're not from an English speaking country, they usually learn English. Um, but yeah, it was, it, 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 I still wouldn't say I speak fluently in Chinese by any means. I can listen pretty well because I've been just surrounded by Chinese speaking for so long. You begin to pick up like uh, unconsciously. I've never actually studied the language. Um, I think the biggest turning point for me was just my wife. When I went out and lived in her village, she's from like a legit village. What you hear about in China, like no toilets. Like they didn't have a road to their house until five years ago. Like she's like from the straight poor part of China. They didn't and have a road to their house? Yeah, there was all just mud paths everywhere. Like it's no, no joke. Like I went there and I visited. She was worried to take me there. She thought I'd leave her. She's like, oh, you're going to see how poor I was. I was like, it's all right. Don't worry about it. You know, we all had to come from somewhere. But yeah, it was, it's, it's crazy. And, um, when I went there, everyone in the village, nobody speaks English, not a lick of English. So, and I, and I got stuck there in 2020. We went there for the Chinese <laughs> New Year and then everything shut down. And I was there for like six months, just surrounded by Chinese. So you can you imagine my Chinese group so much. <laughs> you got stuck in the middle of nowhere, basically yeah. in China during COVID lockdown. Was the military still like policing the area like I saw in the news around there? Or was it a little bit more? Uh, so not in the village. What we had done is we went, there's only two ways into this village. You come in this road and you go out this road. 
they just chopped down trees and dropped them in the road. They're like, no one's coming into the village. <laughs> so we were just in the okay. You know, these people, they're all off grid, uh, except for electricity we have. But everything else, it's like their water's collected from the mountain. Um, their food, they grow it. It's like we didn't need to, to contact the outside world. So we were kind of isolated in that village. Which at the beginning it was kind of fun. You're like, oh, this is this is nice. You know, I don't have to worry about COVID. I don't have to wear a mask. Everything's fine. Everyone in the village is is COVID free. But after about a month or a little over a month, I started to go crazy, man. Like, I just there was no one to speak English to. Um, you're always eating the same food, and um, yeah, you just I felt trapped almost. That makes sense. So do you miss like American Chinese food? Like a lot of people I know that moved out there. I actually know somebody that lived in China for like two years. And the first thing he did when he came back was order Chinese food. Um, <laughs> he's like, cause I can't get it over there. Um, <laughs> uh, any basic meat product. I miss. I mean, we're talking about like a steak in China is like this thin. And they're like, Oh, that's so delicious. I was like, you know, like we like, make that steak 10 times bigger in the u.s and there's actually juice and meat the meat flows from the juice or the juice flows from the meat in china or in america not in china so it's like it's literally like they eat like a little meat patty and that's i miss that i miss that when i used to travel back i haven't been back in about four years now but uh before i used to travel back in the summertime and when I used to go back, that was one thing I'd love to do is just get a Texas Roadhouse steak, get like that big tomahawk and be like, oh, this is, that's the life. I can imagine, man. So this, this sounds like a wild experience. So like you're fairly new to Chinese. COVID's going on. Chinese government just drops a tree so nobody could come into this village anymore <laughs> and you're stuck there. Um, did you learn Chinese fairly quickly then? Obviously, like one of the biggest ways, one of the easiest ways to learn a language rather is to simply be surrounded by it. I learned Spanish by working at McDonald's. Like I started using the very poor Spanish that I got from school. And it's funny, the brain makes connections as you communicate in a second language. Um, eventually, it kind of fills in the gaps for you. But like, how long did that process take? Uh, I would say it took almost the whole six months the first month you don't even realize you're beginning to learn that language like it doesn't click in your head that things are starting to make more sense to you but by the end of my time there uh by the time they removed the tree from the road um <laughs> i would say my chinese had improved tenfold like it was it was crazy i could talk to the people i was like this is remarkable so um, we also, I, I think at that time I realized I relied on technology too much being here. Um, I was always using my phone to translate stuff, but at that time I was like, you know, I had nothing else to do. So I wasn't using my phone. And it, I think when you push yourself to do something, then it, it's, it clicks better. Dude, without question. Um, that is absolutely the case. So I'm curious. Could you hear your own accent in Chinese? Do you speak it well enough that you could hear your own accent? Because I could hear my own Spanish accent. And I hate it. Like, Man, I sound white. Um. <laughs> uh, actually, so most people will tell me that my my Chinese is pretty standard. They say I have a, a decent pronunciation of it. Um, if anything, I, I have a more northern Chinese accent because they all have different accents among their, their the Mandarin as well. So where my wife is from, they have a very strong accent. 
but for whatever reason, I didn't pick up that accent very much. Um, I do I do know how to speak a few of their local words that are different than Mandarin words, which I think are, are quite fun. But um, yeah, I, I you you can definitely tell when I speak Chinese that I'm not a native Chinese speaker. That's that's for sure. You might not be able to say, oh, he's an American Chinese speaker, but you could definitely say that's not a native speaker. Um, and the, and the pace, the pace has to do a lot with that too. Like they can just shoot off sentences and I'm like sitting there struggling to put something together. So. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if it's like this out there, but typically like in uh, more rural areas, they speak a little bit slower. So hopefully that was the case. I know it, it depends on the area, of course. So <laughs> that might be the opposite. You know, they might talk faster out there. But I know in a lot of rural areas, especially Spanish, like they'll speak really slowly. And it's like, oh, this is really easy to understand. Thank you for making it really easy for me. <laughs> they might have been speaking slower, but it wasn't very clear. I don't know. <laughs> it's just a lot of noises being made. And I'm not sure <laughs> who they're intended for. So... <laughs> cool. All right, man, that makes sense. So I'll talk a little bit about English and then we'll move on to real estate because I'm just kind of curious from your perspective. I think English is a very unique language because you have the Germanic roots and then you have the, the Norman French that invaded. So it's like this bastardized German, Latin, and on top of that, like Norwegian words and stuff of that kind of mixed in. So like how difficult is it to teach English? as a second language, because it doesn't have a firm basis, like, you know, the romance languages are based on Latin, whereas English is kind of four, four languages mixed together. <laughs> uh, you'd be surprised, actually. So the, when I was working with younger kids, they can take to English so fast, like it's, it's remarkable. But when you're working with an older bunch, um, I've, I've taught a few adults and, and other people who wanted to learn, and it's hard for them to grasp. I think it's a it doesn't directly translate in Chinese like Chinese have a lot of words that just they're like meaning you know there's like a, a like a poetic part to it and it doesn't translate clearly into English so you can't just use a translator or a dictionary and try and figure out how to flop the language around and I think kids don't struggle with that you know kids are just like oh this guy's saying this and that's the right way and it means this so they just follow you. They're, they're kind of miming you. But uh, adults try to find like a meaning behind stuff or too much. We're, we're looking for the logical explanation and uh, that can make it difficult. So I definitely think if you're looking to learn a second language, do it when you're younger. <laughs> yeah, that absolutely makes sense. It's kind of like I like to consider this like there's an art and a science when you're analyzing a real estate deal. Like the science is strictly the numbers whereas the art is being able to see this as potentially a different use or something like that um kind of the same thing with language i would i would assume um whereas the younger folks they're more apt to see the artistic side whereas the older folks are going to solely kind of think scientifically and logically they're going to think i need to translate this this way and that's just unfortunately that's not how language works you could translate something perfectly and it won't make sense in the other language um <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, very cool, man. Thank you for getting into that. So I'm curious, like when you started investing over there and how that journey looked. Um, so obviously you're on COVID. Chinese government put a tree down. So you're stuck there. You were able to yes. purchase a house completely virtually from some <laughs> random village in China. Yes. Um, so 
at that time, I think COVID actually helped um, a lot. Uh, it began to make processes online because even though I was in China, in America, people weren't allowed to, to gather face to face. So all these things began, began to produce like a, a virtual aspect to them. Like I was able to get a notary that was like, I don't care where you are in the world, you know, as long as you show yourself on the camera and hold up your ID, we'll say you are who you are. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and then there was, um, so I had to get a notary and that was part of the task. Um, finding the house was quite easy. I mean, everyone knows how to search real estate websites. So I was on Zillow, Redfin, different things like that. Um, and then actually I found the, the deal I found was for sale by owner. So that was also quite easy. I wasn't contacting another agent. I just added this guy's cell phone number and talked to him directly. Um, <laughs> and then the bank, I think that was the hardest thing to overcome. So this happened on two fronts. First of all, the bank was like, we're never seeing you and we're supposed to give you a loan. Like they were very skeptical of this, <laughs> this whole thing. And second of all was it was hard to find a bank that was willing to lend to somebody who, I mean, I don't have a W-2. I haven't had a W-2 in a long time. So um, I do report taxes, but if you looked at them, they wouldn't look very good because I'm earning a Chinese wage. Um, and in America, that wouldn't go very far. So, yeah, um, so I'm actually super curious how that worked out then, because obviously you're being paid a Chinese wage, which I'm sure they transferred over to american sure. dollars or something like that there's a transfer rate that's easy enough to do the math but how were you able to qualify for a house if you don't have you know two years of income obviously this changes everything because you're using foreign income to purchase that's right um so that was man that was a hurdle uh, it took months of contacting different banks different um i was looking up hard money lenders i was looking up all kinds of stuff i was on different forums trying to figure out like what people have done. I, I was in bigger pockets asking questions, um, things like that. But it all came down to a local bank. And I found a, it was called Pine Island Bank. And it's just like a small town outside of where I bought the property, like a real small town. I think they have like 2000 people, 3000 people. And there's a bank there. And I called them and the guy was like willing to listen to my situation. And he's like, oh, so you have these funds. You've done really good saving. I mean, I had I had stocks as well. I was like, he's like, just show me all your accounts, show me your assets, and we'll consider it. And he was like, if you can put twenty percent down, we'll give you a twenty-five year loan. So I didn't get the conventional thirty, but you know, twenty-five was all right. It, it did increase the prices a little bit. Yeah. So you're you're kind of at a disadvantage here. Because you have to put 20% down. You can't do any fun house hacking or things of that nature in order to save money on a down payment. So obviously you must have saved really well when you were out there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten anything without 20% down. I think they saw it as a big risk. I'm very happy they took that risk on me. But uh, moving forward, I would like to do more of the, the house hacking ideas um, or definitely just getting the smaller down payment. Um, living in one of the units, maybe getting that only 5% down or you just, sometimes it gets real low. They're like, oh, 2.5% down. You're like, well, okay, <laughs> let me give you a thousand bucks for this house. <laughs> so 
Um, yeah. Also, it, it did help. I'm in a cheaper market. I'm in the Midwest. Um, I wasn't buying anything in New York, LA. That would have been a, a challenge. Um, and and you'd be surprised. I mean, it is easy to save money out here. I'm not lying at all. It's like I can save eighty percent of my salary, eighty to ninety percent. So really, and what are you making out there? Just curious. In, in uh, terms. <laughs> sure. Uh, um in legal terms i'm making close to 60,000 a year okay gotcha so, <laughs> there there, there are a lot of off the charts um so well my my last job which would have been during that 2020 time that one was a little bit less maybe closer to 40,000 now i'm at a, a higher level international school so making a little bit more but uh, one thing that happens in China that most people don't realize is all your work provides housing for you. And this is across the board. It's not just English teachers, like everywhere. My, uh, my wife, she works for the hotels, everyone. It's like they, they buy apartment buildings, the businesses do, and everyone just lives in them if you're an employee. Or you get the option to live in them and you don't have to pay anything. It's just part of your benefit package. So it's never nice. You might have a roommate, but you get to live for free, which you can imagine if you cut out your housing costs, you're saving a third of your salary already because most people spend about a third of their salary on housing. So that's that that's a huge benefit that I, I take advantage of. Yeah, I can imagine food is generally cheaper too. Um, I'm sure it's generally very rice heavy, but I'm sure it's, yeah. I'm sure it's cost effective at, at a minimum. <laughs> <laughs> rice and tofu man rice and tofu cool so so where did it progress from there you said you mentioned you bought a duplex in minnesota which right is so family. and where has this gone from there so i got into that duplex um that one required just a, some small maintenance after i purchased um and then i was able to get that rented out right away uh, I was surprised. I bought it in December, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with Minnesota, but renting out something in December can be a challenge. It's very cold. People very don't want to move. Yeah. Yeah. So I was worried. I was like, oh, I got this house. I had to keep paying for heat. You know, you can't can't turn the, the stuff off because the pipes will freeze. Yeah. Yep. So, so I was like, well, I got to run the furnace, uh, put it at the minimum, but I'm still running it and paying it. And then luckily, I mean, it only took about two to three weeks i was posting on facebook um just post on facebook and post on craigslist that i had a, a house for rent and you know i was getting maybe three to four calls a night um again this huge challenges just being abroad because i have this internet phone number that i bought from america but i have to be logged into the app in order for it to like register that you're being called because it's not part of your normal phone. And so I'm, I'm logged onto the app in the morning and it's like, oh, you've missed five calls. And <laughs> I would try and call these people back. And, you know, it's just the timing is crazy. We're, we're about, it depends if you guys have daylight savings or not, but we're either 14 or 13 hours off. So when you guys are at like 6 a.m., I'm at 8 p.m. And most of these people are calling me like midday. So it's like my two in the morning. I'm not taking phone calls at two in the morning. So, uh, it's definitely had its challenges. Uh, in the lease that I wrote up, I put that 
uh, email is our main form of communication. And then I said texting works as well. So now the, the tenant's just been emailing me, which I greatly appreciate. I was like, that's, that's perfect. Uh, it also is nice to keep records of everything. I think for their, on their behalf and my behalf, it's nice to have everything written down and sent from each other. So we know what we've said to each other. Yeah, no kidding. Um, cool. So you managed to acquire this property from abroad. You managed to fill it with tenants from abroad. Um, using Facebook Marketplace, it sounds like. Like, luckily for yep. you, that was a great time to place a tenant. Due to COVID, there were a lot of people looking that had tr trouble finding them. So I'm sure filling it wasn't difficult. The rental market was pretty insane. But what was that mm. process like going in completely black? Like, why didn't you call a local agent? You're just like, I'll figure it out. Yeah, so I, I called three different property management sites. This was before my closing because I was figuring, I was like, I'll just use a property management company. It'll be easier. Um, there was two things I was looking for. One was turnover fees and the other was monthly fees. Um, there are cheaper companies where I'm from, uh, about 8%, which is on the lower end of costs, but they charge turnover fees. And in my mind, I've never liked that. I figured that incentivizes them to be bad managers because they collect more money when the tenants turn over. You know, if there's a re-sign, they only get like 25% of those rent. But if they find a new tenant, they get 50% of the rent. And I was like, that's, that's, we're not aligned with our goals then. Um, the yeah. one property management company- bad behavior, essentially. Right, right. And I was like, the one company I did like they were just a flat 10%. They said, whether we get someone or uh, once someone's in that property, we collect 10% of the rent we collect. And I was like, That's, that, that seemed more fair. I liked that. Um, and they also said, if no one was renting the property, I didn't have any costs. They weren't taking anything. So that incentivized them to get the property rented quickly. And I was like, That's, that seemed more reasonable. Um, it was actually my dad, though, who suggested he's like, well, why don't you just post it on on the marketplace and, and see if anyone's interested? And once I did it and I started getting all these phone calls and screening tenants was definitely harder that way. Uh, I wouldn't say it was easy by any means. Um, I was basically using what they could tell me over the phone as like whether or not it would work. So I did put an income requirement on there. Uh, so that kind of helped weed out maybe potential. I said they had to have three times the rent. Um, and then also the house wasn't um, government approved for Section 8 housing. So that kind of helped as well, because I think that's a mess and a half. You have to, like, make sure you're all up to code and all this other things. Um, yeah, it was it was definitely worth it once I found out how easy it was to rent. And then once I put that tenant in there, um, I got very lucky because the tenant wanted both units. Like this is an up and down duplex and um, it has one door you enter and then you can like one staircase goes up to the up unit and then the door on the right goes to the bottom unit. And for whatever reason, she has a big family and she just wanted the whole unit to herself. And she's like, oh, I'll use both of them. I'll take on the whole rent. And I was like, it was, it ended up being perfect because I was like, wow, that saved me a lot. One of my biggest concerns about getting the duplex was that the neighbors wouldn't like each other and they would always call me about 
how terrible their neighbor is. And like, I'd be like, well, you know, if he's not breaking any rules, what can I do about it? Uh, one of the people that wanted to take one of the units before I, I let this lady live there, um, they were like, oh, I'm a piano teacher. And I was like, wow, that's that might not work in a duplex because you're going to be playing the piano a lot. And, you know, I'm glad that you would be OK, but maybe the other people I put on the upstairs unit wouldn't be very happy. Um, she ended up not taking the unit. She said her piano wouldn't fit through the door. And I was like, OK, good. but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, you know, there's just things you don't, you have to think about that it doesn't click right away. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine making that list of, of worries until like they actually popped up. It was never like, oh, what happens if a tenant has a piano? I never thought about that until someone was like, I'm a piano teacher. And I was like, wait a minute, that's not going to work. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was, it was definitely a lot of planning and, and challenging. Um, but I would say so far, and I still don't use a property management company. Um, I still just work directly with the tenants. And I, I, I encourage them to do that. Uh, I did let them know once. We've re-signed re the contract once. And uh, I said that I could get a property management company to help them if they wanted more direct help. But I was going to charge them more. Um, I would say that they would pay part of the price on that. So, of course, they were like, no, no, we'll keep the cheaper rent and just work with the emails. And, you know, I, I've always said I'll respond to them within 24 hours, but it will never be like a direct. And then they also have my dad's number. He lives in the area. And that's like an emergency, like if a pipe burst, um, something like that. I was like, please just call this number. He could be there in five minutes. So. Cool, man. That makes sense. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's how it works, man. You like, you, you start doing something and then problems start coming up and guess what? You get to solve them. But, you know, ultimately you find that, you know, the more challenges that you overcome, the better off your life becomes. So, I mean, you are a big fan of the fire movement. So for those uninformed, why don't you give us a broad strokes overview of what the fire movement is? And then we'll talk about your fire goal. Sure. So um, fire is stands for financial independence retire early um i found out about it through reading um there's great books on the subject um and blogs as well lots of blogs and a lot of people trying to achieve it um but basically the idea is that you build enough assets and your assets are paying you enough that you're basically financially independent you don't need to work anymore um a lot of the books create these small term goals that you can achieve along the way. Like uh, the first one is getting your emergency fund set up, um, which surprisingly, when I started this whole thing, I didn't have an emergency fund set up. So that really helped. I, I basically called my credit cards my emergency fund. I was like, well, if I ever need anything, you know, I just swipe the card if, I, if I'm in desperate need. But um, yeah, it actually, it went full circle. I was, I, I'm, I mean, honestly, four years ago before I started this whole thing, I was in debt, college debt, credit card debt. I had debt. I mean, it was, it was bad. And I don't know. It was a lot about my wife. She came from a very poor place. So she understood money, I think much better than me. And then me taking on these books. Um, I started doing a lot of audio books and running so that those two things together would be like, you'd go out on a long run, listen to these books. And they would talk about like, I just, I loved the stories that you could hear. It was like, these people are like, I worked every day 
10 hours a day and I was sick of it. So I started saving money and now I've been living on a beach somewhere. And I was like, that sounds fucking great. (laughs) How could I pass that up? How could I not want to follow that? So um, later on, as, as I've pursued it, so it started with building your emergency fund. Then it goes on to building what they call like FU money, which is where if you're struggling at work, you don't like your boss, um, maybe you're told to do something you don't want to do. You have this money to just say, you know, I can, I don't need this job right now. I can hold out till I find another one. So that's why they call that FU money. But one thing they don't tell you is the security behind that money. Like when you have that in your bank account, you sleep so much better at night. You, it's like, and you're able to take these opportunities that maybe before weren't allowed to take in your life. Maybe you take a pay cut, but the job has more perspective. Um, maybe you want to move to a new place, but you're, you're scared of the moving costs. Um, I've, since then, I've moved all over China. Um, I've lived in three different cities. Uh, like I said, I moved to a, a, a tropical island. Um, after I got here, I, I started in Beijing, but I ended up in Hainan Island. It's like a tropical paradise island. And it was, it was great. I mean, I loved it. I loved it. Coming from Minnesota, it was the best thing ever, like living in this tropical island. So I, I followed that. And then eventually you just keep saving and you, and you get your assets built up until you're able to live off your goals or your assets, your cash flow for the year, just with your assets. And um, to calculate that, they have a lot of fire calculators online. Um, There's a simple rule. You can take your annual expenses and multiply them by 25. That'll tell you how much assets you need to save. Um, Or what I like to do is I just record everything. Um, All of my expenditures for the year, I try. I mean, I'm not like too into it. I'm not like marking everything down to the T. But I am keeping a pretty clear checklist of what I've spent, what I've done. And uh, that really helps because it shows you like I'm right now, I probably spend close to $20,000 a year. I think for the last three years, it's been roughly $20,000. So if you can know that you're like, okay, what does that mean for fire? That means I need to have enough assets that I can earn $20,000 a year and I could live for free. I could just live on what my tenants are paying me, uh, what I'm earning from stocks. So, so that's where the fire movement went. Um, at the beginning, like I said, it was kind of about this tropical island beach life thing that people talk about. But later, and, and I would say right now, I'm at a point where it's not even about relaxing all the time. It's more about just doing what you want to do. When you're like, I want to wake up today and go to the gym. You can do that because you no longer are obligated to, to, to do what people need you to do or want you to do. It's what you want. So that's, that's really what drives me towards fire. Um, I would say you need to have passion in it. Don't, don't try and pursue it and not have passion in it because it can be hard. Uh, most of the people saving will tell you they aim for 50%, right? A lot of people are like, oh, 10%. 15%. No, if you want to start going towards the fire, um, they'll tell you 50%, 60%, 70%. Uh, personally, I aim for like 80% um, monthly savings. Uh, and then, I mean, it, it, it counter, it, they balance each other out because the more you're saving, A, the more money you're actually saving, but B, it means you're spending less, which means your goal is moving actually closer 
to the direction you need it to be. Because if I'm spending $40,000 a year, I need a lot more money saved to achieve that $40,000 payout. But if I only spend $20,000 a year, you know, the numbers are much less, but I'm also saving much more. So it's kind of got this rebound effect, like the less you spend, the less you need, but the more you're saving. So I, I personally, I think the fire movement is just, it's fantastic. I wish, I, I honest, if all my friends know that I love it, I try and push other people in that direction. And if you're not able to go to fire, I mean, at least save more money. It, it really does help you feel better in life. Uh, when opportunities arise, you have cash on hand. Uh, when there's a pandemic out of the middle of nowhere, you're ready to buy a house <laughs> as I was. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, like you never know when things are going to happen. You never know when another 2008 is going to roll around. But if you have cash on hand, you can scoop up five properties um, for the price of what it was for one property before 2008. So, you know, it's just, it's having that money there and ready and usable instead of saying, oh, I got to wait till next month's paycheck. Yeah, very cool, man. I love the 80-20 the rule in effect there. Yeah, if you could save 80% of your monthly income, you're doing pretty well in terms of saving without question. I can only, I, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like to live off of 20 grand a year. Obviously, location is important. And that's something that seems to be very common with the fire movement. I think that's one of the greatest parts about it is most people tend to live abroad, which, you know, lowers your fire number. I mean, that's one of the easiest ways to lower your number <laughs> is to not live here. <laughs> Definitely. And it's it seems, uh, I think one of them had put a name to that. They called it geo-arbitrage, which is where you're constantly going abroad or living abroad part of the year to lower your prices. Um, it also, I mean, it, it takes effect in other areas that you don't think about. Uh, for me, medical care. I can go to the doctor and get treatment um, for basically anything, and it only costs me at most like a hundred US dollars. Um, a basic checkup to go there and, and maybe find out you need some cold medicine, it'll cost you five bucks to see a doctor. Like it's it's incredibly cheap. Um, I know people that if you need like a minor surgery would just fly to Asia, maybe not China, but Asia and and have the surgery because it's 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 much much cheaper. It's cheaper than what you would even pay the insurance company to help you pay it in the U.S. So, and that includes your flight, and you get a trip to Asia. So, <laughs> and you get a trip to Asia. Well, that's I mean the insurance companies are raising up the prices unintentionally. I it's it's all a big scam, man. Um, <laughs> um, this is very interesting stuff. So basically, your cost of living is very cheap, which means you don't need a ton of income, mm -hmm. but you're still making good income because you have a college degree and you're teaching English out there. You're making pretty solid income, but you get to save most of it, reinvest into assets and retire early. So how far are you from your fire goal? Just curious. Like, do you have a time frame on that? Yeah. So I, I, I'm not 30 yet. I, um, I had a goal to hit 300 by 30. Um, and I, I've surpassed that goal. So, uh, that was, that was my first big goal. Um, a lot of people didn't believe me. They were like, oh, that's, that's going to be crazy hard. I think I was 27 when I started that goal. So I would have had to save a hundred thousand dollars a year to hit that goal. And they were like, there's no way you're going to do that. You don't even earn a hundred thousand dollars. And I was like, well, you guys just wait and watch. <laughs> 
And uh, yeah, I mean, I pulled it off. I, I'm over and I'm not even 30 yet. Um, but my, my actual fire goal is much higher than my fire number. Like I said, for your fire number, you need to take your expenditures and, and then multiply by 25. But my actual fire goal, I set at 1 million just because I want the ability to say I'm a millionaire. Um, <laughs> when you're calculating your assets, you do need to be careful with real estate you can't count your mortgage into your actual assets. So uh, the property that I bought, you know, I didn't pay outright. I put 20% down. Um, the other 80% that I owe the bank, of course, I'm making monthly payments. And uh, slowly, I will own it. But uh, in the meantime, every month, I record how much is left on that loan. And I subtract that from the value of the house. So that way, I make sure I'm not saying I have extra money that's not actually mine. Because if I were to sell that house today, I owe the bank that much. Um, so yeah, just be careful with that. But definitely my goal was 300 first. I've surpassed that. Uh, and my next goal would be a half million. I set little incremental goals. And then my last uh, last biggest goal would probably be 1 million. I'm not, I don't know if I'd stop there because I really enjoy the, the thrill of you know, finding properties and investing. Um, I love finding new apps too. That's one thing that I kind of um, help people with is I, I try new investment apps and then I let people know how they are. Um, uh, I, I actually made a YouTube channel on that as well. So I, I help people with figuring out these apps, figuring out which apps are good. Um, they're very tricky in wording and the way they design stuff. So I like to like break the numbers down on Excel and be like, this is your actual return. The app might say you're getting 10% back, but in reality, you're really only getting 7% back. And I, I break that down for good or for bad. I, I do that. Um, I've also had very good luck with things like that. Um, there's a, a real estate app. I'm into many real estate apps just because those are easier than actually purchasing properties. And uh, I've had some really good uh, opportunities and, and talks, actually. I've, I've reached out to a few of the app developers, and they've actually talked to me about stuff. So um, I've been into to that as well. And I just think that it's a very interesting path to take. People don't understand, like, the new generation, we're all about apps. Like, I don't want to walk into a bank and find a broker and, and invest. But if I pull out my phone and I tap on, you know, Robinhood, boom, there I am. I can buy stocks today. So that that's kind of what I do. And uh, I just love to break down these apps and be like, you know, this one I think is a better choice because of these reasons. And uh, don't get me wrong, Robinhood is not bad, but it's not the app I use. I think long-term investing, M1 is the way to go. Very cool, man. Uh, well, thank you for giving us such a clear picture. So like, what is your vision for the next 12 months, man? What are your goals, David? Well, I'm. First of all, uh, I'm looking for more properties. Um, there was two routes I was taking. I was either going to try and get a larger unit than a duplex. Maybe uh, there was a triplex and a fourplex that I was looking at. Um, I was running the numbers, but right now it's hard to tell because things aren't feeling so hot anymore in the market. Um, but one thing that I've been excited about that I think I might lean more towards is storage units. Um, yeah, we found a, a, a decent size, a 60 unit storage facility that um, I think that would be an amazing investment opportunity. Uh, it's a little bit off the beaten path with real estate, but it's still kind of, you know, it's incorporated because a lot of that is real estate. 
And the reason I would be purchasing this one is its location. It's next to a very fast growing city. I'm excited. I think the, the value of that land will grow exponentially, as well as you can rent out the units for storage in the meantime. So that one is maybe more of a gamble. Uh, I, I'm excited for it, but at the same time, I've been trying to you know, play it cautious. Uh, there is a larger loan involved in that, and I think I would take on a partner. My little brother, he seems to be into real estate as well, so I've been talking to him. Um, and yeah, I just, I think that would be where I want to head this year. Uh, I'm really excited for possibly going home this summer. I haven't been back to the States in four years. I haven't even seen the house that I bought. Um, I'm, I'm excited to get home and see it, you know, live and in person. I bought it a year and a half ago and I've never seen it. So <laughs> that's very cool, man. Um, it's cool, man. Like anybody wanted to reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you, David? Uh, so by far email is the most easy and, and simple way to reach out to me. Um, but also I, I do have a phone number. It just, it doesn't work very well. It's an internet number. I have to log into the app in order for it to like connect. And then, yeah, I miss a lot of phone calls. That's, that's <laughs> email is probably the best way to talk to me. Um, if you guys are familiar with China, I have a WeChat. You can add my WeChat. <laughs> um, cool. Um, awesome, man. So David Sawalich, thank you so yeah. much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. And to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is accomplished one action at a time. So go out there and commit to taking massive action. David here is investing from a totally different country. Not only that, but he was doing so during COVID lockdown, where the Chinese government just knocked a tree down and, and locked him into a village for a few months. So if he can do it, you can do it. Tell somebody you know that can help hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next one.